Welcome to the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Edward Assel. I'm sitting here with Arthur Black. Hello, hello, hello. And today, uh, we're going to switch things up a little bit, so our guest is actually um, not going to do the majority of the speaking today. Absolutely not. So today we have our audio uh, engineer, Brad, with us, who typically does all the work uh, for this podcast for us. So thanks for sitting in, Brad. Hello, Brad. going to be fun. So today, uh, I mentioned that we were switching things up a little bit. We, uh, instead of bringing a guest on that is going to teach us about something, we are going to let Arthur take the reins, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, sparkling wine and champagne. I see what you did here. You basically, typically, you flip the script. You typically have somebody who's an expert come on and regale us of great tales of how things are made, what it tastes like, what you should be looking for, and instead, this time, you brought in the simpleton. To shut you down. No idea what's going on uh, to try to keep Arthur in check with his. Uh, You're here to make sure that I don't start talking about heterogeneous uh, nucleation, summation, and bubble formation. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, that would, in, in a nutshell, that's exactly why he's here. Or if you talk about it, at least dumb it down to where I can understand what the hell you just said. I can do that. All right, sounds that. good. That was part of the email to Brad. Like, hey, you want to sit in while uh, Arthur talks over your head? Well, you know, it just goes so deep, you know, I mean, the rabbit hole in terms of beverage and viniculture um, just goes deep anyways. But when you're talking about sparkling wine, there's, there's history, there's service elements, um, there's production. You know, obviously with sparkling wine, you're dealing with some atypical uh, production things where you're not dealing with, with still wines. Tons or of stuff. This is all the stuff that, turn, that scares everyone. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, I love the science. So we'll, we'll bring it in where it's relevant. But uh, before we start talking about bubbles, uh, Brad, what did you drink last night? Uh, what I have last night, I had um, Johnny Black was what was closest. Ah, we blended Scotch whiskey, 12-year, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's 12-year. Ed? I actually uh, had a, a Gimlet um, with, I don't remember what gin I had in there. Uh, it was kind of after work. I believe uh, it was, a, oh, I'm sorry, it was a Ford's. Yeah, it was a Ford's Gimlet. Ford's Gin, uh, Simon Ford's kind of pet project. Not really a pet project, they're huge, 86 company, right. but... I mean, it's, he's got his name on the label, so that's his gin. Okay. How about you? I, um, well, I taught class last night, so I had a bunch of leftover bottles. Um, <laughs> the kids took home most of them. We, we went through about 40 wines yesterday, I think. Um, it was France and Italy were the topics, but I took home a few, and uh, I kind of sipped on those through and post-dinner, and then I actually ended my night with a Ginshu Sake, undiluted sake. Cool. Yeah, great way to, to end the night before you go to bed, drink 19-proof uh, sake. So, well, this episode is going to uh, come out right around the holidays, so I thought it was kind of pertinent and you know, relevant for us to talk about sparkling and champagne as a lot of people that don't typically drink sparkling or champagne might be thinking about a bottle of that around Christmas time, New Year's, etc., and want to make sure that everybody was kind of had the knowledge going into that. But I guess that kicks off right where I want to start. Like, so sparkling and champagne—it's not just for uh, holidays. Uh, it, man, it's a soapbox that I've been beating on. Like, as Americans, we've been consuming more and more. We've been consuming better and better. It's like the first time ever we became the world's leading consumer of wine by value and volume. So we're, we're trending up in, in, in both areas. Um, and we're drinking more dry rosé. We're, we're just drinking better, but we still suck at drinking sparkling wine and champagne. Like the three glasses we have in front of us is more than the average person consumes in a year of sparkling wine. Yeah, 
blows, man. Come on, America. Be competitive. One, one bottle is more than the average American consumes. Uh, not even a bottle. It's like two glasses per capita. Wow. Because it's all concentrated in the holidays, and people just associate bubbles, champagne, sparkling wine. Well, with, you pop it at New, York, New Year's, and that's it, right? Yeah. No, well, New Year's, and then um, you get a little bit of kick around graduations and wedding season. Celebrations, basically. And, of course, we have a 50% divorce rate in this country, so, you know, we get a little kick when that happens, too. But it's not an annual thing. Like, I drink bubbles all the time, year-round. It's hands down my island wine. Bubbles, Scarlett Johansson, Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you know you can accomplish the bubbles. Yeah. Ah, fuck you. <laughs> uh, it's my island, goddammit. It's my dream. I can have as many people as I want there. Of whichever gender I choose and whatever. So... Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate that people just associate sparkling wine as a celebratory beverage. And it, it is indeed. I mean, it's festive and you have all these, these bubbles forming. You know, there's approximately around 200 million bubbles in a, uh, a bottle of sparkling wine. that's just itching, waiting to, to get out and get into your belly. So um, I don't know what to do. I just need to do more stuff like this and keep doing trainings and keep promoting sparkling wine. So um, the one we're having today actually... Is, is really appropriate because it kind of deconstructs the notion that um, people think like all sparkling wine is champagne and all champagne is sparkling wine. It's not the case. Champagne proper is an actual region. It's a place in France. It's about two hours. So it's like uh, Bordeaux or Burgundy or something like that. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a region. It's a delimited agricultural region known for growing grapes and grapes that are made into the world's definitive sparkling wine. And I, I hesitate to use generalities like the best whenever I talk about anything because there's always exceptions. But you really can't kid yourself. The Champenoise, the people of Champagne, they make the best goddamn sparkling wine in the world. You know, there's other areas. Napa does some great stuff. Um, Franciacorta is a really awesome area of production in Lombardy in Italy that makes world-class sparkling wines. But Champagne's tits. They, they really just, that's what they do. Um, it's about the distance between here in Indianapolis from Paris to Champagne. Um, and although they're known for making the world's best, it's not to say that there aren't sparkling wines made all over the place. Um, the one we're drinking right now is actually an Austrian sparkling wine that's made with a grape called uh, Gruner Veltliner, which is their most widely cultivated white grape in Austria. And it's delicious. It's wonderful. They did a great job with it. Yeah, this is... Um so these are different grapes than you would find in Champagne proper. Yeah. So even though you can make sparkling wine anywhere in the world, because it's really just a production method, you know, you're just finding different ways to get CO2 in solution. Um, there are different ways to, to do that, and I'll talk about traditional ways versus more uh, bulk or, or uh, industrial ways to, to do that. But sparkling wine can come from anywhere, and it can be made with any grapes, even though historically, because of the following the lead of Champagne, um, we always associate sparkling wine really with the holy trinity of great varieties, which is Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Pinot Meunier. Those are the three grapes that occupy all the acreage in Champagne. And as a result, California when you're drinking bubbles, Aussie when you're drinking bubbles, South American bubbles, um, even Cap Classique, which comes from South Africa, although they use a decent amount of Chenin Blanc down there because that's their, their big white grape. A lot of people follow suit and make sparkling wine with Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. Um, Confused yet, Brad? Not a little bit, but I, I guess from a marketing standpoint, though, I guess what I, what I hear when I hear sparkling wine, I'm thinking you're going to go get the Rossi or, what, you know, something that's from, like, a drugstore or something. It's not, 
you you no drink champagne. Apple cider. Yeah, you drink champagne for celebrations. Sparkling wine is just that thing that you go pick up at uh, the drugstore. Um, you know, from a celebration standpoint, champagne is expensive. Right. Even the cheapest champagne, you're still looking at something, and the holiday is going to be priced. Thirty, forty dollars. So, I mean, it's it's a premium wine, and that's probably why people might think it's just for New Year's or something like that. Um, and it's premium for a number of reasons. There's tons of cost drivers out there. Real estate. You know, you got ninety thousand acres of delimited agriculture that make up Champagne itself, and that's real estate, man. I mean, right. that land has been owned, passed down from family to family for a very, very long time. Um, so right out the gate, you know, you've got a cost driver. The way they make champagne is extremely laborious. It has to be aged a certain amount of time. That's another cost driver. Um, not to even get started on the marketing of it. And, you know, you, you can't watch, like, the Academy Awards or the Grammys or something or without seeing a large champagne house that's got, you know, their bottles of a Moet on the table or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, champagne does cost a lot. And other places in the world do provide less expensive sparkling wines. Um, which are more on a day-to-day basis. Like, I don't drink champagne every day, but right. I try and drink sparkling wine as much as possible. But what I've learned today is that champagne and sparkling wine both share... I mean, it's it's you can have really good sparkling wine. Absolutely. Um, you know, just because it didn't come from the region, it's not... It, well, I guess it could be lesser, but it's, it's not necessarily lesser. There are producers out there in the world that are not producing champagne proper that make really killer sparkling wine. You know, California, for instance... Um, Tanninger is a famous champagne house that makes sparkling wine and champagne. Which but, we started off our cocktail wonk episode with. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> oh, God. Oh. That bottle didn't last 10 minutes. No, I'm still recovering from that. Um, but, uh, you know, they have a daughter house in California, in Caneros, called Domain Caneros. And they make a really, really delightful domestic sparkler. Um, and it's much more inexpensive than the sister property in Champagne, And, you know, Mum in Champagne does that with Mum in Napa Valley, uh, Piper again. So you have sparkling houses around the world that do provide some better value, and then even countries that are known for better value. Cava, great sparkling wine alternative to Champagne proper that comes from Spain. You can buy these things 10, 15, 20 bucks a bottle, get a good sparkler. And by the way, kids, like this is the shit you use to make mimosas. Like, don't go high roll and make mimosas out of Dom Bernion, you know? <laughs> Please. Right. You know, I mean, unless you just, you got to be that kind of playa. Um, but it doesn't make sense. Use a cava for sparkling wine cocktails, Prosecco coming out of northeastern Italy, a lightly frothy sparkling wine that is uh, very modestly priced and great if you're playing around with cocktails or mimosas or you just want something uh, gouillant, something gulpable you can pound on the porch. So that's what you make your mimosas with. Right. Right, if you drink mimosas. Yeah, you know. which I don't. But. I, I don't want the caloric intake with the orange juice, man. I've, i got to save it for the, the alcohol. Well, OJ is kind of just tough to play with in general. It's, it's, the, it's a crappy citrus for even cocktails, you know, because it's not very acidic. So, yeah, it's Note, just kind of there. Do not get Ed orange juice for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. He's not a fan. Or the uh, drugstore sparkling wine. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Taking donations, but not from the drugstore. And they all have their place, man. As long as people are drinking, I'm happy. Um, you know, well, we I got mean, some catching up to do. We need to up that uh, number of glasses per capita. Yeah, we so got to work. If it has on to be it, done man. through the drugstore. So be it. Got to work on it. But um, yeah, I, I guess the uh, uh, important thing to get started with would be um, like serving sparkling wine. Um, you know, sparkling wine does have 
sparkles, it's got bubbles, there's carbonation, there's a lot of pressure. And if you're talking about um, sparkling wine and champagne, you're looking at six atmospheres of pressure. All right, so that's 90 pounds of pressure per square inch in a bottle of sparkling wine that is just itching to go through a thermodynamic exchange when you pop that cork. You're releasing all the pressure when gotcha. you when you pop the cork. What's in the bottle? Its inherent nature is to come in balance with the ambient with the, with the environment outside the bottle. So you have this release of all this CO2. And if you're not serving at the appropriate temperature, if you're not opening it the proper way, you might lose that cork. And that cork can fly out at about 65 miles an hour. And it makes for an awesome story in hindsight. Like if you shoot a cork and hit someone across the room or if you're in service and it gets away from you or something. I almost killed someone during service when I was young. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. You know. I was not pointing the bottle in the correct direction and that thing let go and it hit the wall behind her head about mm-hmm. five inches away yep. with quite a lot of force. Land on the table, land in someone's food. I've seen like the bottle. Someone's got their hand on the cork in the bottle. They don't have a good grip on the bottle, and the, the bottle shoots on the floor and spins around, sprays everybody in the room. I mean, yeah, it's, it's funny later, but it, it, it's not, <laughs> not funny. Not if you bought it from champagne. Right. Or, yeah, when you, 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 know, you lose a whole bottle of bubbles, too. As um, much as I haven't you know, worked with champagne or sparkling wine, I have yet to have that happen, thank God. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I've um, always been able to open it just you know, just holding the cork in my hand. Well, next time we hang out, I'll bring a sword and we'll savor some shit. We'll, nice. we'll, we'll chop the bottles off, uh, the heads off. It's fun. It's good yeah, time. Yeah, I don't know if the staff here would much appreciate us savoring bottles in the middle of the dining room. Ah, it's, it's totally <laughs> safe. You just got to, you know, point it away and, you know, make sure, again, it's the right temperature. So I mentioned temperature Don't hit one times. of these wonderful windows that are all yeah, around right. us. <laughs> this is a very open space. Yeah, there's, there's, it would uh, be more open if you hit one of the windows with the cork. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Um, perhaps not coming into the uh, the winter months, although it has been a lovely Indian summer here. I mean, it's like I can't believe how warm it is today. I like mean, this is November, and it's, it's like no, it's it's got to be eighty degrees out there is right it? now. Right. I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but it feels pretty awesome. I'm wearing a t-shirt in the Midwest in November. That's <laughs> perfect for me. So, uh, when you get a bottle of sparkling wine, um, you want to store it properly. Um, cooler conditions, you know, nice storage is around 50 degrees or something like that for just wine in general. Uh, you don't want to store it in um, light or exposure to um, ultraviolet light. You might end up with a slight flaw. It's called goutte de lumière, um, or, you know, like a taste of light. Um, it's a, a, a provenance issue, and, and provenance just means how you're, how you're storing it. So with all wine, you want to store it properly. So out of sunlight and... Away yeah. from f- fluorescent tubes that emit UV. Right. Now, does it matter if you store it standing upright or at an angle downwards? or should be at an angle or on its side. You know, ideally, you want at least a little bit of the cork to be in contact with a little bit of the wine inside the bottle, just so it doesn't dry out. Right. And that's the case with all wines. With the exception of fortified wines, you don't want to store like port, um, higher proof, uh, dessert wines, Madeira, sherry, like that. Um, you want to store those upright. But... Um, when it's ready to service, you're going to want to put your, your wine in the fridge for a few hours. You want to get it down to about 45 degrees, um, or you could do that in a, a bucket with um, water and ice. You don't want to just, like, cram your bottle into a, a bucket with only ice because it's just going to sit on top. You might scrape the label or something. So make an equal ratio of water to ice in your bucket, and if it spends 30 minutes in there, it should be fine down to 45 degrees. One, that's the appropriate temperature for sake of flavor profile. But two, things move less at lower temperatures. Everything devolatizes. Um, so if it's cooler, you have less likelihood of when you open that sparkling wine of the pressure just 
blowing up. Right. You, know, you open sparkling wine at room temperature, the cork's probably going to fly away from you, and then suds are going to come on. Right, out. that's what I was going to ask. Like, yeah. I mean, you see that happen from time to time at home. You don't get the bottle cool enough, and then that release, you pour it into the glass, and it's just it's foam important. pouring, bubbling over right. your glass. Now, you know? one of the other things that you brought up was uh, you put it in like a half hour, 40 minutes before. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, you know, when you usually when we bring it home, it's stick it in the fridge, next day you use it or something like that. Uh, should you do that, or should you just kind of keep it on the fridge next day is fine okay. yeah i mean but you, you don't, don't want to cool it too long no i or mean it doesn't it, matter it's if, if it's in the fridge for you know a week it's not a big deal okay. it's, it's going to get down to that temperature and stay at that at that temperature but you never want to store fine wine in the fridge for too long because the subtle vibration of of the fridge will will compromise the structural integrity okay. so if you're going to drink it you know in the next few weeks fridge is fine um most people when they get home with a bottle of wine they drink it within three hours right um, so I would say, you know, throw it in the freezer for a little bit or, or use the, the ice bath I had mentioned. Um, but a cooler temperature is going to set you up for a more successful extraction of that cork. Um, important at home so you don't make a mess. Important if you're on the floor in service so that you don't shoot somebody in you know, the head. Um, by the way, service professionals, if you work in a place where you go to POS and you ring in a bottle and then the bartender gets it, Make sure you check the temperature when the bartender pulls it out because either maybe it just went into the fridge or maybe the bartender doesn't fucking like you and he's intentionally giving you a room temperature bottle. Not saying it's the case. It happens, though. So, um, you know, proper opening, you know, it's kind of tough to do over the radio um, <laughs> yeah. without really? actually demonstrating it. But, you know, you're going to want to cut off the foil and all the, the, um, the nice packaging on top of the bottle so you can get access to the cork and to the wire cage that's on top of it. This is called abiage, all that, that mess of foil and cage. You're going to loosen up the tab, but you're going to keep the cage on the cork while keeping pressure on the cage and the cork. See a lot of service people that will loosen up the cage that's holding the cork in place, remove the cage, and then put the bottle on the table uncaged proceed to talk about specials sometime leaning over said bottle with a rapid fire cork ready to go sounds dangerous yeah and i mean i've i've seen that happen i've seen people get hit with corks it's it's hilarious um but you know could be dangerous so what you're saying is the cage is important the you cage is important make sure to the pressure on. stays it allows a grip for the um the cork because uh, sometimes the corks can be a little bit hard to uh, to get your you know get a good grip on um, but most importantly, you just don't, once you start twisting that cage and opening it up, you do not want to remove your hand. The hand stays on, the cage stays on. You'll slowly twist the bottle while holding the cork firm so you don't actually And when twist you're holding cork. your cork, I've seen you open bottles before, you usually put a finger up on top of the cork as well in case it flies out. Um, I use uh, your thumb my or, thumb. Like, right. yeah, some but people do have a finger. You're putting some sort of additional protection on top of the cage you've also got your thumb on there in case the cage fails to and the, it still flies out to the extent that you can no longer see blood in my thumb i <laughs> hold so that he's really pushing you got to have a firm grip um, and this is someone who knows whereas you know us jackals at home we usually use the towel method or something and yeah, take sure. the cage mm-hmm. completely off set it down like you said not to do and then go get a towel and hope that everything even works if out. you're using a towel aka uh pretentious for towel is serviette even if you're using a serviette which you should right your thumb needs to be hard on top of that 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 bottle and i've i've been in like lots of sommelier competitions where they'll intentionally give you like a jacked bottle they'll give you a warm bottle they'll give you a bottle that they sat like in the windowsill to fuck with you because they're not nice in competitions <laughs> and they just want to see you like mess up and how you respond to it right 
and I was in one competition where these bottles were horrible. It was this crappy sparkling wine they gave us to, to open, and all the other competitors, like, stuck bottles. They couldn't do it. Like, one dude sliced his hand open, literally oh, had wow. to wrap it. I mean, it was, like, blood and on the floor and everything. Um, and I got up there, and I, like, I got in front of the table, and I knew they were bad bottles because people had been talking about it. And I had this moment where I was like Rocky and Mick was talking to me, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he was like, all your strength, all your power. And I just, you know, bent down and went Conan on that bitch and, and, you know, got it out. But I was able to get it out successfully because I had my hand in the right place, had my thumb on top of it and, you know, got some guns, put the, put the smack down on that bottle of sparkling <laughs> wine. Didn't really sound that cool when I talk about war stories and some of you competitions yeah, right. does it. You wouldn't right? leave down <laughs> the trenches of the Somme competitions. So rough. They check my fingernails for dirt before the competition too. Um, yeah. So yeah, um, opening is important. Um, opening correctly is, is important. But more importantly, you know, is drinking. And um, I noticed uh, when we first got started, we did like a little cheers and toast. And Brad said, oh man, I'm the only one holding my glass wrong. Uh, You'll see in the picture to this episode, everybody else has the stem. I'm the one holding the bell of the glass. He was holding it by the bulb. And, you know, some people say, well, you should hold wine glasses by the bulb because you're warming up the wine. Nah, horseshit. What you're doing is getting your mucky, greasy fingers that I don't know where they've been all over the glass. And it makes it rather unsightly. Um, And those of us in the business spend a lot of time polishing said glassware. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thanks, uh, customers. Um, You're no. very welcome. <laughs> oh, that's my staff. I, it drives me crazy if I see somebody grab it by by the bowl and like, no, I'm like why? We just spent hours polishing the glassware. You just put a fingerprint on it. Yeah. Uh, for for staff in house, annoying. Um, for consumers out there, honestly, the correct way you can hold it however the hell you want it. Whenever you buy something, it's it's yours. So you know what? Put it in a tumbler. I don't care. Put it in the Dixie cup. Whatever. It's yours. But. For those that do want to know the proper way to hold a wine glass, whether it be a flute for champagne or, you know, a more bulbous stem for still wine, you hold it by the stem or you hold it by the foot. Um, either of those are more acceptable or you're just not mucking up the glass. Um, well, that's far- a good point you raised. So flute versus other kinds uh, of glassware. I know traditionally, or not traditionally, but like if you backed up 100 years, um, you know, pre-prohibition, post-prohibition, you'd see champagne served in like a coupe, which commonly today we use as a cocktail glass. Right. Um, you don't really see champagne served in that anymore. Um, why? So the coupe is the the uh, more stubby, bulbous glass that has a very, very wide open face. And this is a glass that was employed a long time ago, and it was rumored to have been shaped after the breast size of um, Madame Pompadour. Um, a lot of people think it was Marie Antoinette. It wasn't. It was actually Madame Pompadour, who was um, a lady that lived in the Champagne region. It's just not a great glass uh, for capturing, capturing aromatics of wine. It's great for cocktails, um, but that, that big, wide, coupe, open-faced thing has just proven not to be a great glass for sparkling wine. Uh, it's been replaced by the flute, which is the more slender glass. But I find um, flutes hard to kind of get the aroma out of a flute as well. I concur, which is why I prefer to drink it what we're drinking out of, which is basically a, a white wine glass, which is totally acceptable for drinking sparkling wine. And it's, that's what I would prefer to use, would be just a, a slightly bulbous glass, but not the tall, long, slender thing. Um, 
there is a school of people that think that the tall, long, slender fluid is actually conducive to bubble formation because it concentrates um, your nucleation sites, uh, bubble formation sites, to uh, to a smaller uh, point. It's not true at all, actually. So uh, don't buy into that one. Bubbles form in a wine glass um, because the carbon dioxide bubbles will actually bind out of solution onto certain imperfections, um, dust particles, uh, things like that in the glass. So it has nothing to do with glass shape. Gotcha. They Don't they often kind of put some sort of a little uh, place for bubbles to bind, on, bind onto in champagne flutes? Uh, they would have to, and it would have to be intentional. because right, you always see the bubbles kind of uh, rising up from the middle of the, the center. glass. Yeah. Um, nucleation formation will not happen on uh, natural crystalline fractures. Um, it, it has to, they're, they're, they're actually too small for, for CO2 bubbles to, to, to lock onto okay. and, and to form. So the vast majority of bubbles in a glass of wine that form, say some 60%, happen from the energy that's introduced when you're pouring wine out of the bottle into the glass um, and then binding onto different particles in the glass. Uh, and this is called heterogeneous uh, bubble formation. But anyways, we're, we're getting technical there. So um, getting back to like where sparkling wine can come from and how it can be made, um, the vast majority of sparkling wine is usually made in more compromised climates, more moderate climates. I mean, Champagne, for instance, uh, the region of Champagne is like the 49th parallel, which is pretty much as far north as you're going to get. Further you go away from the equator, whether you're in the northern or southern hemisphere, cooler it gets. Cool climates are more conducive to making more acidic grape varieties, and you need acidic grape varieties for the sparkling wine process. You need strong acid structure to maintain the processes imposed to get those bubbles into the wine. So when you're talking about acidity, we're talking about like that kind of citrusy or sour note that you're going to get, like mm-hmm. it's going to come come forth um, yeah. for those that are out there, like Brad. That's right. why Brad's here, right? right. I mean, I know we can sound snobby when we're talking about acidity levels and all that, but um, to bring some sort of like levity to it, I mean, like, you know, when we're putting together dishes or you're putting together a dish at home, you know, you're always thinking about, is it salty enough? Is there a sour note? You know, otherwise a wine becomes very quickly one note. Um, and grapes can get really tricky when it comes to uh, trying to get that right acidity level and balance with all of mm-hmm. the other components. Um, I mean, sugar, uh, don't get me on my, like, soapbox about Riesling, you know. Um, I mean, everybody out there, like, really poo-poos Riesling, which, except Shame for people that are big. Riesling poo-poos. Right, I mean, big wine geeks never are, but um, I think the perception is always something otherwise. But we'll get into that. And maybe another episode. Uh, got a, in fact, I'll be having a dinner with Tomas Hein from von Schleinitz um, at Husk in Nashville. Well, uh, approximately when this episode actually goes up. So, I'm is he be, coming here? No, I'm actually uh, going down to Na- Nashville uh, with my wife and a couple friends. And I called Tomas. He lives in East Nashville. His brother is the winemaker of von Schleinitz, and. They only distribute in five states, so it's not like widely available, but we are lucky enough in Indiana to actually uh, have our hands on it. So it's delicious Riesling, but maybe we'll get Tomas up here. Yeah, Riesling is delicious. Um, but you got to have that acidity to, you know, very, to balance that out because they, they've, you know, oftentimes later in the harvest and so they get very sweet and it's really in the hands of the winemaker to make sure that they know what they're doing. Well, you were the one that actually, you know, turned me on to the fact that not all Rieslings are sugar-based. I mean, like, very sweet drinking right. sugar, you know? Um, because before that, I kind of stayed away from because I'm more of a dry person when it comes to wine. I, I don't like the sweet. 
as much. Sure. So avoid blue bottles. Avoid blue bottles. <laughs> sweet wines. Um, there's a similarity between them and sparkling wines in that it's just a production method. You could make any wine sweet if you want to. You could make any wine sparkling if you wanted to. Now, over time, certain wines like Riesling have proven to be good for making off drier sweet wines, largely because Riesling is an inherently acidic grape variety. It has really remarkable um, high levels of, 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 of natural acid. And acid is probably the most important thing in wine, period. It provides structure. People all the time ask me, like, what is the most important part of wine? What makes for an extremely age-worthy wine? Um, my first impulse is to say that balance ultimately is the most important thing for a quality wine and for an age-worthy wine. That's a balance of alcohol. It's a balance of acid. It's a balance of tannins, which are the things that uh, contribute color as well as mouthfeel, that kind of chalky, it's bitter. Like a, I always say it's kind of a scrapey, like when you like rub of, your tongue on the roof of your mouth. Yeah, like that's what like, tannins do. It's like chewing an aspirin or it's like, you know... Yeah. Um, it, it's it's the thing that make dry red wines dry. What most people right yeah that's associate with exactly dry. They 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 are drying out compounds. Um, they're um, they're gumming compounds. They exist in the the skins, in the seeds, in the stems. Um, but that's primarily reds, correct? We're, we're primarily talking about reds. But all wines have tannins. Sure. White wines have tannins. Red wines have tannins. There are tannins in tea. There are tannins in coffee. Um, they are phenolic compounds that are colloidal in nature. That is, they gum together. They polymerize and they build uh, macromolecular chains. And like when you sure, it, yeah, it's, all right, all, we've all raised no, eyebrows it. here. It's, it's, the, it's the glue that holds everything together. Yeah. And it, it's the stuff that turns your teeth purple when you're drinking a really tannic uh, red wine. But they are one of the elements of balance. So alcohol, acid, tannins, and then flavor profiles, and or if you have actual sugar in the wine. That is, those are the, the, the different elements of balance when you're talking about wine. Now with sweet wines, all they're really doing is they're allowing fermentation to happen, which is sugar on the inside of the grapes, yeast on the exterior of the grapes, or inoculated yeast, that is, you know, they're intentionally adding commercial yeast, Yeast eat sugars, they poop out alcohol and carbon dioxide. That's your basic formula for fermentation for making anything with alcohol. So how does wine itself then stay away from being, you know, uh, having the bubbles? Because well, beer, you know, goes through the similar process of kind of fermentation and the CO2 naturally. People that are making a still wine, or as the Italians would call it, a, a tranquilo um, wine, are allowing fermentation to end. They're letting all the yeast eat all the available sugar and making it all into alcohol. Now, if you're making a sweet wine, you would arrest fermentation before the yeast do their job and you would leave some sugar in the wine. That's how sweet wine is made, or at least one of the ways that sweet wine is made. You're stopping the yeast from doing what they do, at a certain point, leaving sugar. Well, yeast are also somewhat suicidal. Uh, after they will ferment a a liquid, um, a sugary liquid, up until a certain ABV, depending on the strain, they will die at different ABVs. Um, that's why you don't see 25% alcohol beers. Right. Uh, the yeast have committed suicide by that point. Not literally, but they've kind of accidentally killed themselves by raising the alcohol level of the ferment, you know, the yeah. fermented liquid. Different yeast strains will, will, will die off at, at different alcohol levels. And, and most wild yeast and, you know, ambient yeast for winemakers using wild yeast they're going to die off around 5% or something like that. So you're going to inoculate another yeast to, to kick it up to wherever you want to get to. Now, bringing it back to bubbles, champagne yeast actually 
can tolerate higher ABVs, can I not? Well, um, more importantly, what they're doing with champagne, um, just to not get off topic, with champagne or with sparkling wine, they are creating a, a base wine, what's called a Vin Claire. Um, it's a lower alcohol wine, and they allow the yeast to eat up all the sugars, and they end up with a wine that's probably 8 or 9% in alcohol. And then from here, you are taking that wine, and you're going to inoculate another sugar and yeast solution um, after it's been bottled. And that instigates a second fermentation that happens in the bottle, creating a lot of pressure, a lot more bubbles, and creating sparkling wine. Now, that's the extremely abridged version. Um, when you have sparkling wine where they make the bubbles in the bottle, the secondary fermentation in the bottle, that's what the champenoise do. And that's called the traditional sparkling wine method, or method champenoise. And that's how quality sparkling wine is made. There are other ways to make sparkling wine, much more industrious. I said that sugar and yeast equal CO2 and alcohol. If you just had a tank of wine and it was fermenting and you just put a lid on top of it, that CO2 has got nowhere to go. And as a result, it's gonna dissolve back into solution and you've made a sparkling wine. You've made a, a more bulk method. It's actually called the bulk method or Charma process, um, but you have in fact made a sparkling wine. Um, there's a lot of great wines that are out there that are sparkling that use a more industrious practice. Prosecco from Italy is largely made with the Charma process. Uh, Moscato d'Asti, which a lot of people throw their nose up at, but there are some good versions of Moscato d'Asti that are out there that's largely made with the Charma process. They bring in grapes, they put them in a tank, they start fermentation, there's a lid on the tank, CO2's got nowhere to go, bam, it's in solution. So for like home brewers, you know, out there, it's kind of the same process for a lot of guys that naturally carbonate their beers with a little bit of residual yeast left in that beer bottle before they cap it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that whole like naturally fermented in the bottle, now you're talking about like doing it in bulk and then bottling? What? No, when you're talking about the, you know, bulk. Uh, when they do it in bulk, it just happens in the tank, and then it, just, it goes to the bottling line. Right, that's, what, I, yeah, that's yeah. what I was getting at. Now, the one we're having today, and it, it shows it on the label, it says method traditional. Um, so the Austrian sparkling uh, Gruner Veltliner that we have was fermented in the bottle, and this is how high-quality sparkling wine is made. You really can't have regal or majestic sparkling wine um, without it happening in the bottle, and it's, it's really because of the aging process. Um, this is dictated by law in champagne. Like, you cannot sell champagne that is not made in this method, this secondary fermentation in the bottle method. So champagne is a region. It's about 90,000 acres. It's about 90,000 acres of a lot of different monocultures, which is a fancy way of saying individual plots that are planted to one single grape variety. you got five different regions in the champagne. And these different regions have higher or lower percentages of those three grapes that I mentioned, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. So a producer in Champagne will source some Chardonnay from this region, maybe source some Pinot Noir from that region, maybe source some Pinot Meunier from that region, and will harvest them, will make their Vinclairs, will blend them together, creating what's called a cuvee. You hear people talk about cuvee all the time in the wine world. It just means blend. Could be a blend of different grapes, could be a blend of different years, could be a blend of different barrels within one barreling room, just means blend. So they make their cuvee, a blend of various vinclairs to flavor, they put it in a bottle, and then they inoculate this solution of sugar and yeast. 
It's about 24 grams of sugar and it's some yeast. Now, four grams of sugar is going to yield you a lot of pressure. It's actually going to give you one atmosphere of pressure. Four times six is 24. I said 24 grams of residual sugar. That equals 90 pounds of pressure per square inch because one atmosphere of pressure is 15 pounds of pressure. So, a lot of calculators. Right. (laughs) A lot of explosive force in a bottle of sparkling wine. It's about the same amount of pressure as being uh, 100 meters underwater or so. So, once that sugar and yeast solution is put in there, yeast and sugar start going at it. They start making more pressure. This is called priest de mousse or setting of the foam, and this takes about six to eight weeks. Now, by law, in champagne, entry-level champagne has to spend another 15 months aging in that bottle before it can be processed and, and released to market. There are other quality levels of champagne, vintage champagne, and then your really high-end bottles of champagne called Tete de Cuvées that have to spend even longer aging. And the aging period in bottles crucial because this is where complexity develops. The defining characteristic of a high-end sparkling wine or champagne is aromatic complexity. When you stick your nose in the glass and you get like a toast and the yeasty and the doughy kind of flavors, um, buttered pastry, um, sometimes uh, it's like... Uh, you know, phyllo dough, um, all those nuances you associate with a high-end sparkling wine. And that's the aromatic development, the result of the aging period. Second defining characteristic of a high-quality sparkling wine, small bubbles, itty-bitty bubbles. Uh, if you drink Coca-Cola or soda or something like that, the bubbles are abrasive and kind of obtuse because so they just pump that shit in there. They just pump CO2 in it. In sparkling wine or champagne, that aging in the bottle, the bubbles are continuously getting smaller and smaller and smaller because the CO2 bubbles are actually binding to different proteins and amino acids. And they're reaching out in all directions and they're shredding themselves apart, continuously making smaller and smaller bubbles and getting smaller and smaller. So the longer you age a sparkling wine, the more aromatic complexity it's going to have, the smaller the bubbles are going to get. Um, If you were ever put in a situation and someone says, well, what do you think of this champagne? Just say, oh, it has a lovely complex nose and very fine bubbles. And, you know, there you go. You just sounded like a pimp and you really didn't say anything of any remote intelligence. But it appears as though you did. But it appears as though you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So um, now after that process of aging is done and, um, you know, that's up to the the chef de cop. It's up to the the winemaker um, how long they want to age that bottle, assuming it hits the minimum as regulated by law. Then they need to get all those damn yeast cells out of there because it's all kind of mucked up and, you know, it's not clarified. It's not clear. Um, You systematically invert the wine um, through a process called riddling, as I was done traditionally. Um, You know, once a day you basically come and grab a bottle that's on its side and you twist it a quarter of an inch and you slightly invert it. Over time, it'll... Uh, ultimately be upside down and you've shaken all the dead yeast cells to the neck of the bottle at which point you're going to freeze it with a saline solution you're going to freeze that little pellet of dead yeast cells pop the cap shoot out the yeast cells um, and then it's time to adjust it with a little sugar solution so that you get the dryness level you want for your sparkling wine and then you cork it cage it wrap it it goes out tomorrow so all that all that takes place before it actually gets recorked or corked, well, yeah, for the first time, or is it? 
well, cork, uh, I guess. when it's when it's aging with the sugar solution mm-hmm. um, and developing all those complexities, it's it's got a cap on it, like okay. a, a beer cap. Right. And then after it's been aged a certain amount of time and they're ready to go to market, they do the shaking thing. They get the yeast cells down to the neck. They freeze it. They shoot out the yeast, adjust it with some sugar, throw in the cork, and then let it rest a little bit, and then it goes out to market. Because you would think by doing that, wouldn't that take all the pressure out and therefore release the uh, CO2 no. in the bubbles? Okay. Nope. No, not at all. Um, you use a, you lose a slight bit of volume, but you, you kind of make up for that with the what's called liqueur d'expedition. It's that slight sugar solution. So at this point in time, aging coming up to the extraction of the cap, it's all dry. Um, but there are sweet styles of sparkling wine, and that sweetness comes at the very end. A winemaker decides, do I want to make a dry style, which is the largest category of selling champagne. It's called Brut. Right. Or do they want to add in some sugar and make sweeter styles? Um, That's pretty much the only stuff I had as a kid. The sweeter. Oh, look at this. We got champagne. It wasn't even close to champagne. It was some sort of like sugar water that had been carbonated. Yeah. There was alcohol in there. It was probably like... I don't know, Court 45, and poured into a champagne right. bottle. <laughs> the champagne of beers. I drank um, my share of Court 45. But, I mean, up. you know, th- those, uh, that's the stuff that you're getting at, you know, at the, the drugstore or whatever, or your grandma's letting you have a drink of on New Year's Eve when you're younger or something like that. Um, those are the more inexpensive things that have some sweetness to them. They were definitely made in the bulk method. They brought in grapes. They threw them in a tank. They allowed it to ferment. They trapped some CO2 in the, in the liquid and sent it out to market. Um, you can see, and trust me, that was an extremely abridged version of production, how and why champagne costs what it does. It's a very laborious method of making sparkling wine. It takes time. It takes patience. And there's a thousand steps that I left out um, that go into assessment, gauging when it's ready. Um, and these are all of the regulations in champagne alone. Champagne uh, is regulated by a particular body called the CIVC. Okay. And so when you are making champagne in Champagne, you've got the rules, uh, and that is to preserve uh, kind of a sense of terroir or uh, uh, you know, an identity for Champagne. Um, a, a sense of place, a sense of terroir. I, I really wanted to talk about that term because I think it confuses people, and a lot of people uh, haven't heard it. I, I realized this just last week when I was doing a rum class, um, and we started talking about rum agricole, which... I think we have now discussed in pretty much every episode, but uh, it's one of the few spirits out there, um, at least in the rum world, I'm sorry, uh, not spirits, but one of the few styles of uh, rum where you actually get that terroir. And I found out uh, about 10 minutes in that only about uh, 10% of the class understood that term. And it sounds like kind of a snobby, hoity-toity word, but there really is no translation in the English language? Uh, not a precise one. So, yeah, the term terroir, goutte terroir. Which um, is spelled T-E-R-R-O-I-R. Yes, sir. That's how it's spelled. Um, it's a suggestion of um, place and flavor existing in, um, in a beverage. So, like, uh, when you taste a wine or you taste a beer or you taste something that has a sense of terroir, you're, you're not only tasting like what's in the glass, but you're tasting where it comes from, you're tasting the soil structure, you're tasting the grape varieties, you're tasting um, the aspect of the vineyard, it's, it's, it's orientation to the sun, the slope, um, the thumbprint of the winemaker. Sure. It, it's how 
it's the like the the philosophy that blind tasters use when they stick their nose into a glass they don't know what it is and by a process of elimination they work their way and say okay not only is this chardonnay but this is chardonnay from france not only is this from france but it's probably from burgundy not just burgundy it's probably from chablis so on and so forth um the legislation that's put in place that's regulated by the civc which is an official body that was put in place in 1941 um is there to, to maintain the, the flavor profile, to maintain a sense of uh, culture? Um, this, is, this is a very, it's, uh, it's obviously born of a French concept. Um, the French were the first to sort of legislate um, wine on a mass scale nationally. Their legislation system that puts down all the criteria, all the rules in place, what can be planted where, when it can be harvested, um, what the yields from the vineyards are, what the minimum and maximum alcohol levels are, so on and so forth. Um, that system was put in place in 1936. But and it was, all of that is to preserve kind of the identity of the... Uh, the wines coming from the places they come from. Yeah. Well, and I mean, France is known for that, even in te- technical terms, when they, you know, email is something different, they want to preserve their language, their culture. They're very big into keeping things, you know, strictly France, I guess. Very, very ordered, and so... I mean, if we're talking about sparkling wines outside of France, I mean, do we have areas like that here in the United States? Our legislation is considerably loose okay. compared so we're to still catching up. the French. We just don't care. Is it catching up or is it more allowing for experimentation and because we don't have that history? That and, you know, we're America. We want to be free. You know, I mean, there are, there are rules in place that are dictated by the TTB, the Trade Tax Bureau. There are various points that winemakers have to conform to but there are no rules in in california or in america that say you must plant this here um or you can only use wines that have a minimum alcohol level of this or you are are not allowed to add sugar or add acid to your wine they're a lot they're considerably more relaxed than european cultures at large um the countries in the european union that make wine their legislation is is considerably more strict and then of course the french are extremely um, strict and it's, it's much 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 more enforced um, so there has been a, a cultural heritage of planting certain grapes in certain places and making wine in certain ways champagne sparkling wine being great case in point um, but all that kind of was made official in the early 20th century um, that being said they've been making wine they've been growing grapes and champagne for a long time 2000 plus years I mean the name Champagne actually is a deviation of Campania, which is what the Romans called it when they arrived there. Because if you look at a map of Campania, or a picture of Campania, which is just outside of Lazio where Rome is, and you look at the region of Champagne, they look a lot alike. Mm-hmm. Soft, undulating, rolling pastoral hills. And that's the Romans were like, hey, Campania. And then sooner or later, it you know, eventually became Champagne. Now, when you talk about only being able to plant certain things in certain places, mm-hmm. I mean, like... With here, do they do they change out their grapes at all? Um, because I know here to keep soil structure alive, you know, mm-hmm. we're in the heart of um, you know farming. Uh, a lot of people will put corn here one time, soybeans another time, just to flip things around to keep that soil structure uh, rich. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're planting the same thing over and over, it obviously degrades. Is that considerations that you have to make when you're you're doing viniculture as well? It's 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 another agricultural product. Certain vines are more conducive for long aging, others not. You might see a wine out there like Old Vine Zen, Old Vine Syrah. Um, those are grapes that have proven to make really, really awesome wines the older they get. Other grapes out there, not so much. So it's kind of a great 
per grape kind of thing. Gotcha. But um, it's not just like the life of the vine so much as in, in France, there's a very strong history of matching very specific grapes and even clonal variations of grapes to very certain soil structures. And this is something that goes back in the region of Champagne as well. Um, they've been making wine there a long time, as I said, but sparkling wine didn't kind of come to the way it is now or look the way that it looks now until the first few decades of the 19th century. Um, even though we have documentation of viniculture by Pliny in 79 AD, um, and you have... Would that be Pliny the Elder or Pliny the Younger? <laughs> we, we need to know our ancient Roman uh, <laughs> philosophers... <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Come on. You have um, that in your notes? <laughs> it, was the, it, was, it was the elder. Okay, right? all right. It was, it was the elder. As he watched Pompey uh, burn, he was sipping on some... That dude sparkling. got around for back in the day, he man. He, he really did. did, man. It makes you <laughs> makes you feel like an underachiever. And, like, we have trains and planes and shit. So, any case, uh, he, he was writing about um, viniculture going back that far. Um, they were known for a lot of still wine for about the next millennia and a half. And um, the sparkling like phenomena kind of grew out of the, um, the the nature of the Champagne region. It, we're pretty far north. I mentioned 49 uh, parallel earlier on. Um, I mentioned cooler climates more conducive to making sparkling wines because cooler climates will yield more acidic grape varieties. Um, it's so cool up there. You're looking at 60 to 80 days of potential frost. You know, you got a couple hundred days of um, potential rainfall up there, even though it's only about 25 to 30 inches, like, all over. If you go to Champagne, you're there for a few days, you're going to get a little shower. You know, it's like Seattle or something in certain seasons. It's, it's, it's just going to happen. So being that far north, being that cool, wasn't proven to be, like, the best place for, for, for viticulture. Um, they were making their wines, and the wines would actually stop fermenting, um, after they had started because they were getting towards cooler months post-harvest. Yeast are inactive below certain temperatures, so the wines would stop fermenting them, they would bottle them, and then it would start to warm up come spring. The yeast that had just gone to sleep because the cool temperatures would come back alive, start eating more sugars, and bam, you got bubbles. And actually you had explosive bubbles, a lot of sparkling wine between... 16th, 17th, uh, moving up until early 19th century, they were losing tons and tons and tons of bottlings from exploding bo uh, bottles. They didn't even know really what the hell was happening. It took a young pharmacist, um, Francois Antoine, to, um, to figure out um, that uh, there was a certain, actually it was Chaptel that figured out that bubbles were forming because of sugar and yeast and exploding, and then it was this other younger dude who came along and figured out the precise um, formula to, to get sparkling wine into bubbles without having that explosive force. Before that, it was just the devil. Yeah, the devil, <laughs> the devil exploded my bottles. Yeah, anybody out there that's ever like tried to wing it on home brewing or home winemaking, I'm sure has encountered the uh, the bombs in the closet. I, I Yeah, come down. Of, some of my happened? early uh, home brewing in my early 20s, yeah, woke up late one night with many hand grenades going off in my closet where I was, like, letting the beer uh, naturally carbonate and right. kind of didn't account for the amount of residual sugar left in those bottles. There's booze and yeast all over oh, the place. They, oh, yeah, it was terrible. I mean, it looked like a just like a, a crime scene. It was just splattered with uh, beer wort all over the place. 
So, um, but the, so I mean, we've been talking a lot about champagne, but I mean, as the holidays are coming up, a lot again. I know this is not just a holiday wine for everybody to drink, but uh, this is a particularly busy time for retailers to like sell uh, champagne, sparkling. And a lot of people don't really understand what it is. So, like, if they're going to a store to pick up a few bottles and they want to, you know, they want to show the family a nice time, but they don't want to drop the dollars for champagne but they want something sparkling. I mean, how, how do they read a label to determine what they're getting is actually a nice quality sparkling wine? Are there sure. like signifiers? Um, well, I mean, just very generally, and I think I kind of threw it out earlier, if you're looking for modest price, do Cava from Spain, do Prosecco from Italy. Uh, if you want something sort of middle tier, go domestic, uh, you know, get a California sparkler. Um, there's some cool sparklers that are coming out of, out of Oregon as well. Um, if you want to go premium, go to Champagne proper. If you do want a quality sparkling wine, that is going to have some of that aromatic complexity I mentioned from, from some aging and bottle. Look for the term traditional method, method champenoise. It's going to be on a label. I mean, it's on the label, the one we're drinking right now. Winemakers want you to, to see that. They, they want you to know that. Um, so that's that's the you know the easiest way to, to, to find a, a good sparkling wine. And, there, and there's, there's plenty of them out there. You know, some other things to think about from an actual, because we've talked a lot about, you know, history and some production stuff and some geeky crap, but other things reading the label. Um, I mentioned earlier that sparkling wine is usually made with Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. So two of those grapes are red. One's white. Chardonnay's white. Pinot uh, Noir and Pinot Meunier are both red. If you see a sparkling wine out there that says Blanc de Blanc, so white of white, then that's going to be 100% Chardonnay. So you're just dealing with 100% Chardonnay. It's good Probably. to know. Yeah, easy enough. Simple. Well, I was going to say because usually when you know we go out and pick a, uh, a, a wine for the celebration, especially New Year's, uh, the thing that the only thing that I really see that you know shows what this is compared to that compared the only thing I've looked for anyway in the past has always been brute or spumante or you know or is that yeah. you know so I, I mean what are the different styles I guess? Yeah, great, uh, easy enough. So. Um, you can categorize sparkling wine and champagne in, in two primary ways. Uh, one is based on what is it a blend of, you know, what grapes are in there. And then two, like what category, category is it in terms of, of age? So the first, grapes that are in there. You got those three grapes, Blanc de Blanc is white of white, Chardonnay. If it's all white grape, then you're probably only going to taste all white fruits as far as a flavor profile. Um, if it were to say Blanc de Noir, then that's a wine that they made from the two red grapes, the two dark grapes, Pinot Noir or Pinot Meunier. It most likely is going to have a subtle nose of red fruits on the nose. So major easy distinction between Blanc de Blanc and Blanc de Noir. If it doesn't say anything on the label, or if it doesn't say Blanc de Noir or Blanc de Blanc, then it's probably a blend of all three grapes. Historically, traditionally, sparkling wine and champagne definitely is a blend of great varieties. It's what you would call a horizontal blend. That is a blend of different things that may uh, have come from all of the same year, but different plots, different grapes, different things. So is that what the NV means, the non-vintage? NV is a reference to what you would call a vertical blend. Um, if you have a wine that is made from different years, a little bit of wine that's made from 05, a little bit of wine that's made from 06, a little bit of wine that's made from 07, you blend them together, 
you have a vertical blend. So horizontal is anything that's blended from the same vintage. Vertical is anything that's blended from multiple vintages. And certain wines in the world are definitely known to be non-vintage wines. Port, the dessert wine, is definitely a vertical blend. Um, if you have uh, a port wine that says NV, that means that they're using grapes that have come from multiple years and have blended them together. And it's largely for flavor profile um, or a house style. With sparkling wine, since the weather up in Champagne is so shitty, culturally, they had to make wines from different harvests. And they would take the good fruit from this year, add it to the wines and the fruit from the next year, and so on and so forth. And actually, the CIBC, the regulatory body, by law, dictates that they have to hold back a certain amount of their harvest every year. This is called blocage. So by law, a winemaker cannot make all his wine from one harvest into one wine. So non-vintage champagne or sparkling wine is a style of wine uh, in champagne that is the bulk of champagne. The vast majority of champagne that is made out there is in this house style called non-vintage. Now, if you have a really kick-ass year, so despite naturally shitty weather, if you have a badass year, you can make what's called a vintage wine. And all the wine that you put into that bottle has to come from that vintage. Typically, this happens three or four times a decade because every year isn't a great year in Champagne because the climate's so crappy. So your non-vintage is the wine you make every year. It keeps the lights on. It's readily available out in the marketplace. You're releasing bottles of it every year, even though it's a blend of multiple previous years. Your vintage wine is really kick-ass fruit from one year there are more strict regulations imposed on it it actually has to be aged longer than non-vintage non-vintage has to spend at least 15 months aging in that bottle with all that yeast activity going on and those bubbles getting smaller and then the aromatic complexity is developing vintage wine has to spend at least three years aging in the bottle which is why vintage costs a lot more right sure it's a cost driver and then your highest end wine um, that a champagne or sparkling wine house might make is called their uh, mise en cave, or literally put in cellar. Like uh, this is age worthy, this is something for serious celebrations. And these are the big flagship, really high end, $100, $200, $300 plus bottles of sparkling wine out there. Um, you know, Tattinger, I mentioned earlier, they have a wine called Comte de Champagne. Absolutely awesome, it's their flagship. It probably spends seven or eight years aging in bottle, which is a shitload of time and a huge cost driver, a lot of money. So um, categorically, you can classify your sparkling wine between uh, uh, Blanc de Blanc, Blanc de Noir. Um, there is also a category called Rosé. When they make Rosé sparkling wine at the end of the whole production process, when they add that little sugar thing, all they do is add in some dry red wine, makes it Rosé. There you go. It's going to taste the red fruits. There you go. And then you categorize wine according to whether it's non-vintage, vintage, or ultra-premium, or the, the, the mise en cave, what's called tête de cuvée, and that's your really expensive stuff. Well, after sitting here for, you know, 45 minutes or so, I feel like I'm a lot smarter for the, uh, for the wear here. That's a bunch, man. It's, it's, it's a hell it's of a lot of stuff to digest, you know, yeah. especially, you know, if you're kind of thinking about buying a bottle, you know, for the family or whatnot. But, I mean, we obviously here at Shift Drink encourage everyone to drink more rosé, drink more sparkling, drink more champagne. But um, 
I'm, I know that Arthur has mentioned it uh, at the beginning of a couple episodes. And before we wrap up, I wanted to um, ask him to define it. Um, but you oftentimes when we ask about what did you have to drink last night, you say grower champagne. Um, what exactly does that mean? It's grower champagne. Uh, real quickly. So uh, in Champagne, I mentioned it's 90,000 acres. That 90,000 acres is divided amongst about 15,000 different growers, wow. different vinerones. So these are people that grow grapes. Some of them make wine. Some of them do not. A lot of them sell their fruit to larger houses, which are known as Grand Marquis. So all the champagnes you've heard of, Moet, Vaucliquot, Tattinger, um, Bollinger, uh all, all the larger properties, these are properties that own some vineyards, but they source a lot of fruit from individual growers throughout the Champagne region. And if you look at two dozen of them, they're responsible for 80 plus percent. Actually, the top seven large houses in Champagne are responsible, I think, for 70 percent of all Champagne that oh, comes wow. out. Now, you have something that's called grower Champagne. And this is a phenomenon we're seeing more and more in the Midwest. We're seeing more and more nationally. These are itty-bitty tiny growers that have very, very small parcels that are not only growing their grapes, but they're actually making their own wine. If you look at a bottle of wine from Champagne proper, the real deal from France, it might say Negociant Manipulant. Um, that is a larger house that is a Negociant, someone that buys and sells fruit and makes wine, Manipulant. If you look at a bottle and you see RM, Recotant, or Grower Manipulant, Manipulant Maker, that is a Grower Champagne. Okay. Um, I think Grower Champagne is wonderful. I think a lot of the wines that the Grand Marquis make are wonderful. Uh, we're just seeing more and more of these smaller, more artesian producers that are that are coming into the U.S. market. Well, I know it's something that you've been a fan of for quite some time. Yeah, they're, every, they're, every time I'm around you, you want... Grower Champagne. They're they're delicious wines. They're wonderful. There's a lot of amazing producers, and we're seeing more of them more of them in the uh, the Midwest. The large cities have a huge selection of them. Um, you know, we're, we're we're getting more and more here. Um, they're a little bit harder to find and less a little bit less available, but they're here. So just you know, go into your retailer and ask about Grower Champagne, and hopefully someone is there on staff that can help you with what they are and help you with some selections. Probably not going to find those people at CVS. <laughs> Excuse me, can I see your CVS wine ambassador? <laughs> yeah, right. CVS so, wine steward. I guess just a quick question then. Um, when it comes to, you know, your higher end wines and stuff like like in beer it almost feels like it's a complete opposite. You almost like the craft beer, the movement that's come around where you get more exciting flavors, you get more, you know, different things. It's not just Budweiser, it's not and even uh, when you're in Germany or something like, you know, they've got their main ones, but it's fun to actually taste all these different flavors from all the different beer makers that are coming out with new stuff uh when it comes to champagne and things like that it almost seems like you still like there is uh, what am i trying to say there's there's not like a budweiser of champagne where it's it's <laughs> you look at it and you know that it's the number one it's the top but at the same point it it's not great well there there yeah, is okay. a budweiser of champagne oh, is but there? i'm i'm not gonna drop we're that not name gonna, out we're not gonna right who anybody's so, I, I would just say Watch the Academy Awards or the Grammys or anything like that. Any rap that. video. Any rap video. And uh, if you see a sparkling wine in a rap video or champagne in a rap video, that's your, your Pilsner right gotcha. there. Um, and I've drank my share of those brands. And honestly, you know, even bad champagne is still pretty decent. Um, 
but yeah, it's 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 night and day different than the smaller guys or the really quality-minded producers that still might be a little bit larger. Um, one last thing I got to throw out there: um, everyone has heard of Dom Perignon. It's it's the Ledium Premium Luxury brand that's out there. Uh, was a real dude. He lived in the 17th, um, 18th century. He didn't invent champagne. He made some contributions. Um, if you're ever in a situation where you're talking about sparkling wine or champagne. Don't refer to Dom Perignon as DP. Um, <laughs> I found out when I was doing a staff training one time that DP doesn't actually translate to Dom Perignon in the minds of most uh, millennials in this country. Um, they were kind of chuckling so at Dom, me. Dom Perignon. Dom Perignon. Dom Perignon. You don't want to get Dom Perignon mixed up with double penetration, um, which is what I did in that staff training. Well, perhaps you don't. <laughs> Others, you, you, you've obviously night. never been to a party at my house. Arthur's uh, <laughs> Craigslist ads have really gone right, down the wrong yeah. path. Yeah, all kinds looking of people for calling. DP. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't Google that. You're going to get a whole different thing than vintage selections of Dom Perignon. Well, uh, I appreciate you like kind of switching roles today, Arthur, and like teaching us. You know, my uh, pleasure, man. It's it's something that's often misunderstood, and like even myself, that's in the industry, and we we sell a lot of champagne and sparkling and it's it's nice to kind of sit down and i I definitely learned something today brad well i was gonna say i'm gonna have to listen to the episode a couple times to kind of go back through it but when it comes down to actually going through the aisle i feel like i'm a little more informed of what i'm looking at more more confident oh yeah well i know that you didn't get a chance to talk as much as our typical guest but that's uh, fine that doesn't um it doesn't exclude you from our hangover cure question that we wrap up every episode with do you have one uh, hangover cure, yeah, it basically, uh, what is it, Pedialyte, Advil, then go to bed. I hear a lot of the Pedialyte. I'm, I didn't uh, try that. Yeah, I've never tried it. Well, it's... It, w- working in radio, it was one thing that uh, uh, Q95 um, uh, program director here in, in uh, Indianapolis told me 10, 15 years ago when I was first getting out there with the, uh, I mean, really crushing the, you know, hardcore alcohol. Um, <laughs> Pedialyte, <laughs> and, yeah. We fully support that. Uh, is that... Um, you got to get up so early for radio, and well, I mean, it's oh, just, or just you a lot wake of people up radio in drink. Yeah, right. well, yeah, we drink. Well, because we, back in the days, but I mean, even now, uh, you'd go out to these events that they pay you to be at. Then they'd shove alcohol down you because you've got a you know some uh, alcohol person there, you know, trying to sell their wares, and so you're getting alcohol, you're getting free food, you're drinking way too much, and before you know it, there was no Uber. You hopefully were smart enough to get a cab back as opposed to drive the station vehicle, although I will say they never, ever, ever pull over a station vehicle. Um, well, I'm going to slap a call, call letters. Right. <laughs> slap some call letters on the old car. And, uh, I think I'm giving the wrong advice. Yeah, you are. I don't think we're, we're not going to encourage no, drunk we, driving. We don't have, do that. We have Uber now, so if, it actually works do, out. If you do, put, uh, put some random radio station that you really hate. There you go. <laughs> don't like pop music? Put it on the car. I love it. I didn't realize radio was so similar to my life. No, well, yeah. I was thinking, yeah, I mean, that does, that's exactly what I was thinking. Was like, it sounds a lot like uh, when we have uh, brand ambassadors, salespeople. Like, oh, kind yeah. of Alcohol through. reps are all over the place. Yeah. Well, this was a really fun episode. I, wish, I feel like we could do about five more on champagne, and we probably will. Um, yeah. I mean, like I said, the rabbit hole goes deep. And, uh, you know, it's just you get me on topics like this and I yeah, it's just pull the string and, you know, run with it. So it's 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 hard to squeeze everything in. Um, I've become like grossly way too comfortable with lecturing on certain topics for three, four hours. Mezcal. Um, oh, yeah, we're definitely going to do that. Yeah. Well, this is going to be uh, 
like I said, holiday time, and our next episode should be uh, Bernie Lebers. We're going to be talking bourbon uh, with Bernie Lebers from Heaven Hill. Yep. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, anything you want to wrap up there with uh, no, Arthur? Just, everybody appreciate Brad coming and everything he does for us. Um, good afternoon. And yeah, we got to give a big shout out to Brad for doing all the audio engineering and like tweaking of our podcast. We wouldn't sound nearly as uh, sexy without his. Uh, I don't magic. know you. Here's the thing that sucks. I'm the radio guy, and you two have the voice, so it <laughs> pisses me off to no no ends. Um, don't forget to follow us on social media. Uh, on Facebook, we're Shift Drink Podcast. On Instagram, Shift Drink Podcast as well. And on Twitter at Chef, uh, Shift underscore Drink. I always have a hard time saying that. Twitter yeah. Shift underscore Drink. Drink more champagne. Come on, guys. Yeah, absolutely. And until next time, when we drink bourbon, uh, have a great weekend, gentlemen. And uh, let's meet up here in a few weeks. Awesome. Thanks, guys.